Hello, limited partners, and welcome to the bonus show. We're recording this today on November 14th. It'll drop uh, drop next Monday. Um, I don't think we actually need to say this on the bonus show, but I'm Ben Gilbert. <laughs> and I'm David Rosenthal. If you and didn't know are, this, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> um, just to, you know, the, the cool thing about the LP show is there's not a lot of like um, logistical work to do or uh, overhead here, but um, thank you so much for joining us as always. Thank you for, uh, um, for being a member. It means the world to us. And, uh, we've just been super pumped by the, the amount of you that have come out to, um, you know, continue going deeper with us. And, uh, um, you know, here's my sort of one and only plug is if you feel like sharing that you're an LP, you should absolutely do that and scream it from the hilltops on whatever social media platform or, uh, you know, private thread you use. So with that, oh. David, we have a guest what? with us today. We have a very, very special guest, uh, our first on the LP show, uh, and nobody better to join us than Dan Hill. Uh, and full disclosure, Dan is the co-founder and CEO of Wave's very first portfolio company, Alma, um, which we will talk about uh, later in the episode. But the reason he's here and what we're very excited to dive into is he played an integral role at Airbnb. Um, and was actually, uh, in his previous company, one of the very first acquisitions that Airbnb made. Uh, so Dan, welcome to the show. Hey guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Really excited to, really excited to chat today. Awesome. So a little more about Dan. Uh, he is, if you couldn't tell from his, uh, accent there, he is British by birth, uh, went to Cambridge for undergrad, was a music major, um, and then, uh, founded, co-founded a company called Crash Patter, which was a European Airbnb competitor. Um, and actually was it, was it Airbnb's first acquisition or, or second acquisition? Do you remember Dan? I think it was the second they'd, uh, acquired a company, a Colio, uh, in, in Germany, um, a few months later, okay. but, uh, we were definitely in the first two or three acquisitions. I think the company did. Yeah. Crazy. Um, Dan then, after the acquisition, moved to San Francisco, uh, joined Airbnb initially as an engineer, and then, uh, we'll get into this, but did just amazing things, shifted over to product management, ended up leading payments, trust, data infrastructure, all of APAC, um, then finally was the head of growth for all of Airbnb, and then, and then at the very end, uh, Dan, you were head of all of guest experience, right? So growth, uh, customer acquisition, search flow, uh, book the booking flow for guests, um, just has an incredible background and stories to share here. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but it was an incredible journey going from, you know, day one at Airbnb, writing lines of code to keep the site up to, you know, six and a half years later, focused on, you know, what is the overall guest experience like of, of traveling on, on Airbnb. Now, and running growth at a company that's sort of like one of the canonically fastest growing companies of all time. Um, congratulations on, uh, on all your efforts. Thanks. It, um, you know, it would be remiss of me not to say it was, you know, a huge team effort. And, and, you know, I was focused on a lot of the products, kind of engineering, data science, design sides of the growth. But there were, there were you know, many people that did a lot of work to, to get that growth of, of, of the company. Well, let's, um, let's dive in. And, and this is really, um, you know, in the spirit of the LP show here, you know, what, uh, as Ben and I have talked about, what we really want to do is, is dive into the nuts and bolts of the day-to-day -day company building that happens from, you know, on the main acquired show, we tell the, uh, what was it? We, we joked about the, you know, the fully grilled and, uh, uh, ready to eat kielbasa, but, um, 
this is the stuffing the sausage so um <laughs> of, uh, of of making these companies um and uh and dan is great so so let's jump in what so i want to start with the crash patter days you were a music major at cambridge how did you <laughs> how did you get into tech and um become an engineer and, and start crash patter yeah i mean it's um on the outside it seems like such a such a, a a huge jump or a strange shift but i don't know for me it was actually pretty organic um so you know my back in the uk my mom uh is a is a piano teacher music teacher she taught in high schools and my dad um is a, a scientist uh, he you know works a lot with on computers so Growing up, uh, on the one hand, I was playing the violin and the piano, and on the other hand, you know, I my dad was bringing home, you know, old three eight sixes and BBC micros, and I was sort of, you know, taking them apart and figuring out how they worked. Uh, and at eighteen, um, I thought, you know, what, I want to be a violinist. I want to be a musician. That's my that's my life calling. Uh, so as you said, I went to university for it. And I studied, um, you know, violin and, and music and conducting. Um, but pretty pretty soon after that, probably in my uh, sort of early mid twenties. I was like, this is not the life for me. You know, I'm, I'm uh, the, the, the sort of stress of standing on a stage every night and playing the violin, uh, the lifestyle of it, it just wasn't uh, what I wanted. And actually throughout my time at, um, at university, I'd you know, been paying my way by making websites for people. You know, back then it was take a WordPress installation, you know, help design a theme, set it up, get it up and running for friends. Um, a lot of them actually, you know, musicians, um, you know, started their careers who wanted some kind of website. Uh, and I just found that I was more and more drawn to that kind of work, to technology and design and building things um, than I was to, to trying to be a musician. And so uh, I started a company while I was at university uh, called Serene Studios, you know, back when I didn't know anything about naming companies. Um, and uh, I just basically, I was a consultancy. We built websites um, and products for, for people. Uh, and then when I met Stephen um, in my sort of um, mid-20s, um, we started Crash Powder. Um, I was like, you know what? Music is something I love. I'm going to keep it just like something I do for enjoyment. And you know, really what I'm passionate about and excited about is, uh, is building technology. And we can, we can talk more about this, but actually, you know, the, the types of skill I think you learn as a musician and, and a conductor actually have a lot of transfer into you know, how you build products and think about creativity and how you build um, you know, great teams and great companies. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. One of the questions later in the show we're going to get into is, you know, what makes for a good product manager at a tech company? And, uh, um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, being a conductor, uh, probably, <laughs> probably, as you say, is a lot of transferable skills there. Wait, I want, I want to just ask it now. So I'm curious, <laughs> yeah, what, how does it transfer? Well, I think, so the music in general, um, is, is actually a pretty, uh, in, in many ways, a pretty mathematical um, uh, sort of discipline. There's actually a lot of structure, a lot of um, uh, formal analysis that goes into thinking about music, analyzing music, and talking about it. Um, it also involves a large amount of, you know, uh, like in any humanities subject, a large amount of like critical thinking, writing, um, storytelling. You know, you're trying to convince someone of your perspective when there isn't necessarily a right or wrong answer. So a lot of that carries through into product management, you know, trying to convince people of an idea, a vision you have um, for the future. I think what was interesting about conducting for me um, is that, you know, there's a few things about conducting that are, that are sort of interesting here. The first is that you're the only musician on stage with your back to the audience. Every other musician is facing outwards and is facing the audience. The audience sees them. But your job is really focusing on the team, the people that are actually making the, the music. Secondly, I think conducting, you're the only person on stage who doesn't make any sound. When the output of 
uh, an orchestra is sound, you're the only person who's actually physically contributing nothing to that um, to that output. <laughs> and you know, product management is, is very similar. Oh, yeah. you know, you're not the one writing code. You're not the one uh, designing it. You're not the one necessarily you know conducting user interviews. Perhaps you're not the one you know answering customer service tickets. Uh, and, and similarly, you know, I think a good product manager is not the one that takes all the credit for the work, but you know, is, is the team is the one that's seen to be doing the great work. But I think, like a great conductor, like a great product manager, um, it's you know how you create that environment in which people can do their best work, uh, and that comes from like, yeah. the processes you use to how you define the goals, to how you will communicate, to how you give feedback, uh, and really, you know, the, a great conductor really is just sort of unlocking the orchestra as one, you know, to an aligned sense of a goal and aligned vision. Um, an aligned sort of uh, view of what we're trying to create together. And I think that has a lot of parallels to, to you know, what I see in great product managers too. That's, that's awesome. Did not expect the conversation to go in that direction, <laughs> but uh, super cool. Um, okay, so let's bring it back to Crash Patter. How did you get the idea for this? So Crash Patter was, um, and, and Dan, you can, you can correct me here if it's wrong but essentially airbnb started around the same time as airbnb focused on europe you guys were based out of the uk um where did the idea come from yeah so Stephen and i uh steven rapaport uh co-founder we um we met um, in london um in probably it must have been about mid 27 uh, mid 2007 and um uh, Stephen had the idea he'd been at the sydney olympics uh, a couple of years prior and, you know, while he was, he was there, you know, he was working in a bar, um, loving the city, but uh, he was staying on, you know, one of the, the people that worked in the bar's um, floors, staying on an airbed. And he, this idea, I think, had been kind of like sitting with him for a little bit after he got back that, like, you know, the only way he could afford to travel and, and be, you know, be in the town for the Olympics was to stay on, um, you know, someone's, someone's floor. He, he couldn't afford the, the hotels. Um, and, and certainly in the UK back then, you know, it was things like Craigslist and Gumtree were pretty much the only way you could you you would access accommodation, whether you were renting or you were looking for somewhere, you know, short term short term lease. And you know, those experiences for 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 a really sort of high consideration purchase, often of like where you want to physically sleep, um, they didn't offer a lot of safety, a lot of trust, a lot of um, guarantees. Mm-hmm. And so I met Stephen just through some friends, and, and we got chatting, and we we're like, you know, maybe there's actually something here, maybe. You know, as we look at all these different, um, whether it's sporting events or things happening, people traveling, maybe there is something about staying with other people as opposed to a, a traditional hotel. Um, so we started Crash Padder. Um, you know, the, the domain crashpadder.com was registered seven days after airbedandbreakfast.com. Um, wow. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had heard of no, it. We, we, we'd never heard of them. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it really was, uh, you know, serendipity, I guess, that Man, we this is- know, this, this is like ca- calculus being simultaneously invented in two different corners of the world. Right. Um, you know, of course, you know, pretty, pretty soon after in the coming months and year or so, you know, we, 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 um, we, we heard of them. We actually met Brian and Joe in, in London. They were, they were out visiting um, probably in Muslim 2008, maybe early 2009. Um, and we, we all got a drink together in a pub. Um, so this is like when they're like NYC or just after. This must have, I guess, for them when we actually met them in person, they were probably, you know, I think they they probably finished YC. Um, I think they'd raised a, a round or two maybe, and we're, and we're starting to think a little bit, um, you know, beyond just the the sort of New York or San Francisco markets they'd they'd started in. Mm. 
Um, but yeah, when we started Crash Powder, we we uh, at, the, at the outset we didn't we didn't know of them particularly, uh, and then obviously we you know became familiar with each other in the coming um, the coming years. So I'm curious the. Um obviously probably even at the point where you first met them your path started to diverge a little bit in terms of growth what from your perspective at, at crash patter what was it that made airbnb i mean obviously there were you guys there were, there was airbnb there was couch surfing there were lots of companies doing this in the early days like why did airbnb become the one that really worked versus you or someone else i think there's there's kind of two levels of this answer I think the macro level, um, which uh, is, is you know we don't I don't take it as an excuse, but um, it's an interesting backdrop. Um, in uh, in a marketplace business like uh, Airbnb um, or Crashpadder, um, a, a first observation is that your supply and demand are by definition in different places. Um, most people are not trying to look for a place to stay in their own city. Um, contrast that to, I guess, Uber or Lyft, where you get the benefit of having supply and demand in exactly the same place. So you can sort of double down your growth efforts, but the disadvantage that each city has to start from, from almost zero. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what was interesting then for Airbnb is if you look at the US as a, as a market, you know, they didn't have to change anything around language, payments, you know, currency, um, to an extent, even just sort of cultural bonds mm. about staying with strangers and travel until quite late. Uh, you know, relatively late into their sort of early growth period. The thing we mm-hmm. hit on pretty soon is, you know, once we had, you know, 5,000 hosts in London and we, you know, got a good presence in Manchester and Edinburgh, you know, the really next places you had to go for, for a large amount of, you know, travel was Paris, Berlin, Barcelona. Um, and it right. just puts in, you know, there's just a lot more friction in trying to suddenly start to scale internationally, you know, quite early on in your in your growth. Hmm. So, so you think it was sort of a, a competitive advantage that Airbnb started in the US where they sort of had more of those cross-market network effects where they could easily move from one to another? I, I think certainly, you know, a backdrop is, is yeah, when you, that network effect had a lot less friction um, in, a, in a large sort of mm-hmm. homogenous market like the US, whereas in, in Europe, you know, and, and you still see it today, I think a lot of sort of marketplace businesses that start ones that focus on geography as a sort of key component um, often hit these uh, you know, challenges a little earlier on than, than a, a straight you know, a U.S. company. That said, mm-hmm. though, I would say, you know, going into more of the micro level, I mean, Airbnb, you know, Brian, Joe, Nate are, you know, probably, if not the best uh, founders I've ever, I've ever worked with or come across. Um, you know, they, they had both an amazing vision for what they wanted to do and a community they could create. Uh, and yet also the ability to ship great products, to hire great people and build a great team. Um, and, you know, I, I give them full credit that, you know, in those early days, um, you know, they were able to just, you know, apply you know, their, their skill and their talent um, and to, to achieve, you know, a huge amount of growth and, and success. Um, you know, we, we uh, when, when the acquisition happened, um, we were larger than they were in Europe. Um, uh but in terms of total size, they were starting to really sort of dwarf everybody. And, and, and you know, in terms of funding they'd then been able to raise and the team they'd built, um, you know, they were really starting to pull ahead in, uh, in their ability. Yeah. Well, so, okay, great. This is a great transition to what it was like then <laughs> inside Airbnb while all this was happening. Um, so the acquisition happens. You come over, you join San Francisco, or you, you move to San Francisco, join Airbnb. 
as an engineer to start, what did you find? Like, what did you versus what you expected? And what was it like when you show up, you know, day one? Also, I, uh, I get asked San Francisco. I got to ask the question: joining as an Airbnb or joining as a engineer when you were the founder and sort of running the your previous company, like that's pretty non-traditional. How did that happen? So, so when I joined Airbnb, um, the company was uh, seventy people. Um, wasn't uh, wasn't particularly big back then, and you know I think uh, it's enough time has passed now. I think Airbnb, the, the initial genesis of the acquisition was that we had you know a, a large base of, of guests and hosts in Europe. Um, Airbnb was looking to expand into Europe. This is uh, if you remember Rocket, uh, the Rocket Internet. The Summer Brothers had launched Vimdu, uh, and yeah. to have raised ninety million euros or dollars and. Um, you know, so Airbnb was like, okay, we need to think about like Europe more seriously now. And so I think the initial genesis of the acquisition was really like, you know, we had a great presence in Europe, a great community. It was a great way to, for them to get a, get a, a lead in, in Europe. Um, over the coming probably, I don't know, a few months, you know, to start with, I was mostly focused on the transition, you know, how we help move our users, get them to understand Airbnb and, and obviously set up their listings correctly on, on the Airbnb platform. Um, that was when I was more like, wow, this is actually an incredible team. This is, um, you know, I, like this, this is, this is not just an acquisition that makes sense from a business perspective. Like personally, I am really excited about these people and this, this work. Um, and, uh, so I joined the, the engineering team to start at that point. It was about 20 engineers and everyone just reported to, to Nate, the CTO. Um, and you know, it was, I was like, this is great. You know, um, it's an amazing company and I'm just, uh, you know, working on, working on great code. Um, you know, the company back then, I think what was fascinating to me is, 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 you know, from the outside, you know, we had, I think sort of placed them on a pedestal in many ways, you know, their, their fundraising, their investors, their, you know, the, the, the press they were getting, the, the quality, the product they were outputting. It was just like, wow, there must be some kind of like crazy magic that they've put <laughs> out that is like producing all of this. And we get on the inside and, and yeah, it's a bunch of really smart people who are passionate <laughs> about the mission, but not without its completely fair share of like, um, you know, confusion or uncertainty or doubt. And, and you know, um, the site would go down for like eight hours at a time, um, you know, and so my, my first job actually was site reliability engineering, uh, you know, literally because I was in London overnight uh, when most of San Francisco was asleep. And I could at least try and help restart stuff if the site would go down, you know, crazy <laughs> bad. So uh, although from the outside, even then, you know, what, seven years ago now, it seemed like, you know, a runaway success. I, I can tell you it was, um, there was still that, a lot of that very uh, good startup energy, shall we say, uh, in, in the building. <laughs> well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. 
Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature a allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Yeah, so I want to, uh, we, we, we haven't sort of like planned to ask this question, but I, I've been thinking about it as it relates to a couple of early stage startups that I'm working with right now. How do you, in in that time period for a company, make the trade-offs on um, sort of like speed to achieve that next feature, either on the product, but either for benefiting the product or for benefiting growth and sort of the expense of, um, you know, reliability, scalability. It's, it's amazing to hear it's uh, Airbnb was as busy, big and successful as it was. And, and there's still that sort of, um, um, you know, the, those sorts of things happening inside the company. H- how do you think about those trade-offs and, and where the company is? It's a great question. And I'm not sure there is sort of a, a magic answer. Um, you know, maybe an observation first. Um, it, it, it was always, you know, it's always the thing you can't prove the kind of counterfactual. So when engineers would join the company maybe a year ago and the, you know, the engineering team was maybe a thousand people or something at that point, um, you know, they, they, they'd be like, well, you know, like, why was it ever written this way? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Or, you know, why would you do it in this, in this way? Well, why structure it this way? And you're like, well, that helped us get from, you know, 1 billion to 10 billion. Um, so at the time it was good enough, um, you know, and if we couldn't really, we, you know, we, we had dreams and aspirations of, of where the company would go and how big it could be and, and everything. But in the day to day of it, you're like, let's just get through the next travel season. Let's just get through the rest of this year. And if the site's still up, then we'll worry about it next year. Um, so I think the way, you know, I think good leadership is, is, um, is just having that a little bit of that judgment about when is the right time to slow down and, and maybe double down a little bit on um, on infrastructure and so on, and when is the right time to push ahead and focus on on growth. It's more acute in an early stage company where those you can't as easily just isolate two pools of resources and have people dedicated to infrastructure mm-hmm. and dedicated to kind of forward product movement. When that's a real trade off every day, um, I, I think it you know. What, you know, you have to kind of look at the different horizons. What will help us be successful two weeks from now, six months from now, you know, two years from now, and, and kind of make sure you have something playing in each of those that um, you know will will we'll be paying off. Cool. Yeah, and so how? I mean, clearly this is <laughs> the way your mind works. Um, and uh, uh, even going back to you know music and conducting, when did this? 
transition happen for you from you show up, you know, you're, you're an engineer, you're, you're working overnight, uh, San Francisco time to keep the site up to moving to product management and, and starting to think about these types of issues. So I guess because my, you know, my background is not, um, in many ways, a, a sort of, uh, archetypal, um, Silicon Valley one, you know, I didn't study computer science at, at Stanford and, and whatnot. Um, uh, I didn't really actually have a, a sort of, yeah, I think some, to some extent when I joined Airbnb, I kind of knew what software engineering was, but product management wasn't something I'd ever really um, like formally been exposed to that I kind of understood it in some way. And so to me, everyone just built stuff and some people were designers and some people were engineers, but I didn't really have a, much of a sense of kind of the formal disciplines, I think. And what I kind of realized quickly on Airbnb is although I could write code, um, what, I was, what I was drawn to, what I seemed to be you know, naturally more, more good at, I guess, was um, what is more formally known as product management. And so my first project at Airbnb, after keeping the site up for a bit, um, was working on something uh, around price prediction. Um, the company had a handful of, um, you know, sort of goals for the year, um, sort of key initiatives that we were excited about, you know, could be game changers. Uh, one of them was around helping hosts set the right price for their listings. We'd, we'd seen it was a huge pain point. People didn't know how much to charge for their rooms. And so myself and a data scientist, Erin, uh, um, just basically went into a room for a, for a month or two and we're like, okay, let's just see if we can figure this out. And that's where I was like, oh, actually, although I'm writing code, really what I'm doing is like thinking about a user problem and the story and, and talking to hosts and figuring out, you know, how do they think about setting the right price? And writing the code was just, just kind of a, you know, an output from that. And so, you know, probably at the end of that, a couple months later, um, I guess I sort of formally changed the, the job title to, to product management and, um, have been doing that for the last yeah seven six seven years, and and you mentioned that uh, you never sort of formally thought about product management as a discipline. Uh, now, in retrospect, how would you define the discipline, and what were the what was the job as you thought about it as you continued to hire a team of PMs? Well, I guess the easy answer would be it's like conducting, but for software. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help as much. Um, so I think you know product management. Um, is uh, is the sort of um, the job of a product manager is to sort of uh, make sure that great product is shipped to your users, customers, um, whoever they might be. Um, and there's really a few parts to that. If you break it down, there's a great product. Um, so a product manager has a role to play in what is a great product. Um, there's shipped. You know, how do we actually have something delivered on time or on budget or, or to that meets the requirements that we need? And then to your users, you know, how do we understand that this this is actually solving something they need and a problem they want? And what even are the things that our users are thinking about or opportunities in the market that we can take? So, I guess in a, in a high level, that's kind of what I look look. You know, product manager does is figure out how to ship a great product, ship it, and to actual uh, users to solve a, a real real pain point. Um, you know, I think over over the, my years at Airbnb, I mean, I, I probably hired 50 product managers and interviewed hundreds, I guess, um, uh, and, you know, saw all kinds of different ways that people think about product management. I think, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was a, it was a discipline that existed. Um, but yeah, I think it's actually even in the last, even in the last five years has come a huge way in its sort of formalization and understanding of what product management is and how to get into product management. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Let's let's jump into. I, I want to get into like um, some really tactical stuff, and I thought maybe the best um, avenue to do that is uh, obviously, as we said, you worked 
in a product management capacity, leading tons of initiatives at Airbnb. Um, but, uh, but let's jump into, into growth where you spend a lot of time. And that's obviously such a important topic, um, for any company and especially startup these days. There's lots of, there's lots of, you know, um, lore, you know, I have in my notes, but like stories about Airbnb and growth, you know, the, the photography, uh, story, you know, the, having the top 40, um, the top 40 uh, um, listings uh, that highlighted, you know, the plane and the tree houses and all that. Uh, Brian living in Airbnbs, all these growth hacks. But but those are the stories. Like what what was really going on that you were doing when you started working on growth? That was um, like, how did how did you think about driving that, that supply demand growth? Um, so I think um, maybe as a, as a, a starting point, um, in any company, you know, there's growth can mean uh, or be interpreted perhaps in a couple of ways um, or, or in a couple of ways that you can think about growth of a company. Um, the first is the kind of growth that everybody in the company is working on and everybody is thinking about. Um, and that could be, you know, the way in which customer service people um, are working with your, your hosts or guests um, contributes to growth or hinders it if it's a bad experience. Um, if people have safety concerns or issues on the site, that again slows or hinders your growth. Um, you know how the, um, the 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 founders show up and the stories they tell, you know, impacts your growth. And so, you know, I think this this could be an interesting uh, discussion. But um, you know, on the one hand, everybody in the company is part of growth and is responsible for growth and is thinking about how to you know grow the business and working on it. Um, and then there's the other part of growth, which is, you know, almost the kind of like, you know, uh, I guess you could call it sort of either, you know, acquisition side um, or, you know, conversion optimization things, which is more the sort of um, tactical piece of, you know, which is one part of the bigger growth story of, of how do you grow. Um, I think what Airbnb... Well, actually, before we get into the second piece, on, on the first piece, oh, I'm just curious, did you guys think, because obviously you're totally right, the job of everyone in the company is is to help it grow. Did you think about it in terms of like um, breaking that down into initiatives or, or people that were responsible for top of funnel growth versus conversion versus retention and repeat? Um, or, or, or was it more organic? It was, um, you know, it, we, we probably went through a variety of different, uh, you know, structures and organizational structures to think about, you know, how to, how to think about uh, growth. Um, the, I think that the thing that the company did really well and the founders did really well was, you know, having everybody on exactly the same page about what the mission of the company was and its values and how that translated into creating a great experience for hosts and guests. And then how that translated mm -hmm. into the metrics that we cared about, like, you know, bookings, nights books, repeat usage, um, those, those kind of traditional typical metrics. I think it was a, it was a great company and it is a great company in that, Everybody understood a lot of that connection between, you know, we want to create belonging. This is what that looks like. It's when people have these kinds of experiences and these are the things that are stopping them or helping them have those experiences. And then this is how my team connects to that kind of, um, that kind of work. Within growth itself, we had um, the part that I was, was focused on is, you know, it was, was with a team of, you know, engineers, data scientists, uh, designers, performance marketing folks. Um, we also, of course, had, you know, brand marketing and PR and policy and comms as well, thinking about um, 
you know uh, the the growth uh, growth piece as well. Um, but t- typically, the team was usually structured around you know a guest facing team, a host facing team, and then a kind of core marketplace team um, working in the in the middle. Cool. So on that, for those teams, for your for your organization that was doing that, um, what were some of the things that um, that you guys were doing? I mean, obviously, uh, I, I suspect you were buying Google and Facebook ads, um, but but sort of at a, at a higher level for 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 your teams, like what were what were your goals? How were you measuring? Um, and and what were you guys doing? Yeah, I think. Um, so the amazing thing about uh, you know, Airbnb and, and, and many companies that experience that kind of growth um, is that the real driver of that growth is people loving your product um, so much that they want to tell their, their friends and family about the experience they had. Um, yeah. What's great about travel is it's already something that people um, uh, talk about. You know, they share photos when they get back from their trip. It's kind of a life moment that they share. In fact, I remember... Uh, you know, someone sort of shared the anecdote with me that pretty much sometimes the only things people still share on Facebook are weddings, births, and huh. travel. Trips, um, yeah. The mm-hmm. only things people still kind of like, pop, like post photos to, to Facebook um, about. Um, and so, you know, what was amazing about Airbnb and, and, and the, what, what the, the team had built um, was a, at the core of it a product people wanted and needed and, um, and loved. So really, our, our job on the growth team, and um, this is from you know with people like uh, Gustav Alströmer um, uh, and others, like was was really just trying to figure out how do we um, take existing behaviors that people have and help them amplify them and get more people to share that experience. Um, and so the mm-hmm. team was kind of broken into the various sort of parts of that um, journey. So um, you know, one thing, uh, the, and, and Gustav. Uh, uh, was the was the first product person focused on on growth really at the company? Um, you know, it was like actually the, the real opportunity here is in people who are already sharing Airbnb. They're already talking about it. They're already telling their friends. Mm. And so, launching the you know one of the first referral programs that we had, where you could invite your friends and get credit towards your future trips. And so, really taking a behavior that already existed and finding ways that we could amplify it. Um, finding ways that people could share the listings they'd stayed at, they could invite their friends, they could plan trips together um, and, and get a lot of growth from, from that. And so that kind of thing was really where we, where we always saw the greatest success was, was find, you know, finding behaviors people already had and finding ways to amplify them. Um, a lot of it then, you know, yes, we spent a lot of money on you know, performance marketing, how we can reach people on Google and Facebook. Um, what was amazing, interesting or amazing for us at Airbnb is, um, you know, because of so much of I think the company is not just around a functional aspect of travel, but the, the 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 culture, the community, and the experience you have when you travel. You know, we could actually had a I think an advantage on things like Facebook or Instagram. Um, you know, just because the kind of stories we could tell about people who used Airbnb and the travel that they they'd had. Um, and then and then we had you know the the, the you know things like SEO. Um, uh, you know, uh, other mechanisms, um, you know, uh, sort of um, particular sort of brand initiatives or partnerships that we'd work on, um, you know, to help, you know, uh, growth there as, there as well. I'm curious. It, it's funny. You know, you say, I, I love the, this framing, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously at wave, uh, as Dan knows, um, uh, we invest in companies sort of, you know, before, a product is even built, let alone product market fit. And I was laying awake at night in the middle of the night, the other night, just thinking about like, what can we do to, you know, 
help our companies and help us think about this. And um, what I came to was sort of almost the exact what you were just saying, Dan, of like, make something that if, if you can get something that some amount of people love so much that they will tell their friends, like, <laughs> then you can like amplify that. Um, and, uh, and I just love that, that perspective. Um, I'm curious in the, you know, you mentioned some of the um, initiatives your team was doing around that, like allowing people, let, let's take, for example, the allowing people to collaborate on, on trips together. Um, what, what were the, as you thought about that project and organizing it, like what were the metrics goals, um, that you were, you were implementing to make sure that, um, that you were going to accomplish that goal of amplifying, you know, the organic, uh, the organic flywheel. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, over time, I think something I, I came to appreciate more and more, um, is that one of the key jobs of any kind of leader, uh, particularly in a product role is, is, just choosing how to set goals. Um, you know, it pretty much so much comes from the goal you choose, the metric, the value, and, and how you think about it. Um, and so, you know, we would always try and find goals. Uh, on, on the one hand, you, at one extreme, you have goals that are very, um, you know, immediate and tactical, like the number of people who clicked on the invite their friends button. Um, on the other hand, you have the goal of like, you know, bottom line revenue. Um, obviously, the 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 former is easier to measure. Um, everyone can understand it. it. They understand how their work connects to it, and you can A/B test product changes uh, against it. On the other extreme, revenue. You know, to some extent, for a business, that's probably the one that's at the end of the day the most important. Um, but it's very hard to connect changes upstream to it. Um, mm-hmm. It can often be extremely laggy and, and get behind. So we would always try and find something in between, something that was still connected to user behavior, that, that was connected to people. Um, using your products and, and, and loving it, but also connected, you know, to an actual outcome that you wanted in the business, whether that be more users or, or revenue, whatever else. What's an example of that? Uh, so in this case, for growth, you know, um, we would look at things like first-time bookings. Um, now, we would therefore treat all bookings equally, whether they were for $1,000 or $1, um, because it connected to the idea that somebody was willing to take a chance and book an Airbnb. They were willing to say, I'm going to do this. We were less, and so the team was focused around like, what are the hurdles that, that prevent people from, from pulling the trigger, from making that decision to, to book that mm-hmm. Airbnb? Now, you could have separate teams, or later on, you could look at like, you know, how many nights did they book, or could we get them into a different listing? Um, but you know, from a growth perspective, we found things like that were a good middle ground where it, it very much connected to the user behavior and, and the user's um, challenges or opportunities, but was meaningfully connected to the company's you know, key metrics that, at a high level that you know, the company also cared about. Um, if we think about, say, customer service, um, uh, which I worked on for a little bit, um, again, you can have things like uh, you know, what is the... Um, uh, you know, how many tickets are we getting? Can we reduce the amount of tickets that the, the company's receiving? Um, on the other end, you could have like, you know, what is the cost of running customer service? Um, neither of those are really that mm-hmm. helpful because they're not really connected perhaps to the actual user problem in a way. And so again, we try and find metrics <laughs> in the middle, like what is the average wait time for somebody contacting customer service? Um, and actually moving that kind of metric had both the effect of, um, by reducing that, um, you're often more efficient, and so you'd spend less money on customer service, and you'd also get more growth because people, you know, were really happy with their customer service experience. And so, 
you know, we're always trying to find those goals that could connect between a user problem or user behavior we were, we were excited about or interested in and still you know, meaningfully connected to the company's um, you know, bottom line or output or, or key metrics. Yeah, I like that framework. I'm curious, as, as you, you were doing, working on these initiatives and these features, how much, um, how connected did you stay to users throughout the process? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, again, Airbnb lore out there of, you know, Paul Graham's, you know, uh, uh, mantra delivered from the mountaintop to Brian, Nate and Joe of go to your users, you know, go to New York, go stay in their homes, go talk to them, go sit on their couches. Obviously, as the company scaled, um, you couldn't go sit on everyone's couch or listen into every customer support call. But were you guys actively doing like user research, like physically talking to people um, throughout this process or, or did it become more data driven? Um, I mean, I, I don't think they're two necessarily even uh, at odds with each other. And up until I left, we were very often on the one hand, we'd often have groups of hosts or guests literally in the office and we'd sit and talk with them. Um, we had a user research team, um, amazing team, um, who would always be getting people in or going out to meet people and showing them the products we were working on, getting getting feedback. Um, you know, we did things like, um, you know, there'd be some kind of weekly metrics meeting. You know, the key teams would get together and talk about, you know, how things are going, what's on track, and, and what are we investing in. And the start of those meetings would always begin with, um, you know, a readout on a couple of like the best or worst kind of customer service tickets that the team had, that we'd had that week. Even when the company, you know, even when we were hundreds of people working on, on products and and things, um, you know, everyone still tried to make it a point of just like directly connecting back to, you know, what seemed like in a statistic, a few people had an issue with their refund button. You know, when you read the tickets, you realize that, wow, there's real people and this is a real problem. We should, let's just solve this. Let's get on top of it. Um, so we tried even even as the company got big to keep everybody connected to um, you know the, the issues that were happening, the, the, the tickets or the bugs or the um, problems that we were we were seeing, as well as of course um, you know some of our most insightful I think product work that we did was from you know just listening to people talk about how they used Airbnb or how they booked travel and what they were looking for and realizing oh wow there's something there yeah we could actually make that. Uh, way better we could improve that if we you know let's dig into that a bit more did you guys do the thing where everybody or maybe every executive or something does x amount of hours of customer service work per month um yes and no we did it for a little bit um to be fair that gives a huge discredit to what it takes to do customer service well um Mm -hmm. that you can just you know put anybody on a a phone (laughs) and expect they'll solve the issue um you know, uh, so, but, but certainly, you know, like I, I would, our product team and the product managers on my team um, would regularly go to one of our, you know, our customer service centers um, and, you know, be listening into calls, be listening into, um, to, to, uh, you know, uh, people writing in about, about uh, the products they were working on um, and, you know, reading kind of like a digest of like the, the top tickets or, you know, questions that had come in. So even if people, people weren't actively sort of literally handling the phone calls, um, there was, you know, we had a pretty healthy culture, I think, of, um, of, of listening and, and, and getting those insights. Yeah, it makes sense. 
Well, in our last couple of minutes here, uh, would love to talk about Alma a little bit and and uh, talk about your current venture and sort of the first question that I have and and that you know, David, I think you you sort of thought of before we dove in here. But in in listening to you talk about Airbnb, um, there's definitely this question in the back of my mind of, oh my gosh, why did you want to become a founder again? You worked on something that worked, and then you worked on something that worked even more. Um, what was the the bug and the itch, and and why go do this? Yeah, so. You know, I guess a few things came together. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I guess in, in, in 2017, there were the, uh, at that point, the most devastating wildfires in Northern California. Um, and I remember feeling then that like, you know, people I knew, friends, colleagues um, had, had, had you know, lost their houses and, and been, been really impacted by this. Um, but nobody knew a good way to to give back, to donate. You know, um, there wasn't a great place where you could be like, oh, here are some amazing organizations that, that totally need $100 right now and they could use that and you can you can help. Um, similarly, through uh, things like Me Too, um, you know, like a, a, a renewed focus on, on gender equality. And, and I remember, you know, myself and friends being like, you know, okay, how do we help? Is there a way, we, you know, we can contribute here uh, and do something meaningful? And so uh, Michelle, um, uh, who I'd worked with for a number of years at Airbnb, um, I remember, you know, we were, we were, we were chatting one day um, and, and Airbnb launched a kind of matching program, you know, so you could, uh, you know, you, you gave money to charity, the company would, would help match that. And Michelle was like, oh, actually, I'm on the board of this local nonprofit that helps um, people who are homeless. And, you know, these are the charities I support. And I was just like, wow, we've, you know, we've been friends for, for four years now. And I, there's a whole side of you about how you think about giving back that I, I know nothing about. And mm-hmm. my wife and I support a charity in, in San Francisco for years. And similarly, it's not something I ever talked about. And I was just, you know, so as Michelle and I got talking, we're like, wow, like everybody cares about causes, whether it's things happening right now, like, you know, the wildfires again, unfortunately, right now, or it's homelessness in San Francisco's, you know, and again, came up with Prop C vote or it's gender equality, or it's immigration. But so many people we spoke to just didn't feel like they felt confident or they felt um, empowered in how they could do something meaningful uh, to make a difference. So Michelle and I at the start of this year, um, were like, let's just, let's let's do this. You know, this is something we think has to exist and, and um, it matters to us and it matters to people that we've spoken to about it. Um, you know, there isn't an easy way to discover amazing, you know, curated local nonprofits and get, give back and, and feel engaged. Dan, you're, it's so funny. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I remember when David first told me about this idea when, uh, when, when Wave had made the investment, I was thinking about, um, it, you know, I sort of know the charities that I, I give to and, uh, I like, I was like, uh, eh, I don't know. I, I fill out the forms on their website. Like I know how to do that. And then it ha- this, uh, actually Yom Kippur, there were a couple of key causes that I sort of like came to that I decided like, okay, I want to, uh, it's important to me to get behind these causes. And I was like, I, I don't even know the organizations that do that. And I'm like Googling around and I, after a mm-hmm. couple hours, like found the, the four that I wanted to pick on that day. And, and I was like, okay, I, I, I totally get it. If you know, if you know these organizations already, which you often have to be in a place of sort of privilege or exposure to even know of the organizations to know, to give to them, um, you know, I, I you, it's not as much of a problem, but when you have a new cause that you want to support or, or um, you're newly exposed to something, I think you're absolutely right. Exactly. And so we looked at, you know, 
uh, today even, 56% of American households give to charity every year. The median amount they give is $800. Uh, the average is nearer $2,000. Um, people, people give to charity. People, uh, individuals last year gave nearly $300 billion to charity in the U.S. alone. Um, nonprofits in the U.S. spent $65 billion on marketing, and yet Google's global ad revenue was only $75 billion. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's this huge thing that's happening. People do it. People give to charity, you know, like, like yourself. Um, but almost everyone, does, no one feels great about it. No one is, is like, you know, I feel really good about my impacts. You know, this, is, this was an experience that I, I really enjoyed or, or, or really sort of um, found rewarding. Um, and so, we're, you know, we're trying to just, as you said, like, how do we just change that whole landscape from, you know, a bit of Google searching to, you know, reading a little bit about them on Charity Navigator to like, no, these are some amazing organizations, like meet the people who work there, like this is the work they do. And this is where your dollars can really make a difference. Uh, and, and really trying to, I guess, create what we think doesn't exist right now, which is a really amazing, easy way that people can feel like they are being philanthropists, that they can intentionally give to causes mm -hmm. they care about and, and see, a, see an impact from their, their contributions. It's funny that one of the questions I wanted to ask is like, was there any one sort of most important or impactful thing that you and Michelle took from your Airbnb experience that you're bringing to Alma? But I'm actually going to uh, tweak it a little bit based on our conversation. You know, this idea that you had of at Airbnb of like, how do we amplify something that people already want to do that makes the product great and then allows them to uh, do it easier and, and share it so that other people can see how great it is and kind of shout it from the rooftops. Um, and I'm just thinking about the, you know, the wildfires last year and origin of, of, you know, part of the origin of Alma and now the wildfires this year and the initiative you guys are doing around the wildfire fund and, um, and the New York times. And, and I think this is a great way to kind of tie it all together. So if, if you're comfortable talking about that, uh, I'd love to hear about it. So, um, basically what we do at Alma is we, we curate five or so organizations into a, a fund, like a, a giving circle or a mutual fund. Um, you give 10 bucks a month, hundred bucks a month to the fund. And we then allocate it to these, um, sort of curated nonprofits. Um, and uh, yesterday, we created a fund um, for to help with the relief efforts for the you know, the wildfires that are happening right now again in 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 California. And you know, we did our own research into the organizations. We obviously uh, places like the New York Times or the SF Chronicle have also done their research and found nonprofits. Um, and we've basically pulled uh, six of them that are you know really amazing organizations together. And you know you can just go on 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 our website, Alma.app, and make a donation um, to those organizations. Um, you know, one hundred percent of it goes uh, directly to those organizations, and you know hopefully make it easier for people who who feel so moved to to contribute and, and help with the relief. That great. Now there's a really easy way I can just you know with um, you know with my credit card with Apple Pay I can just go make a make a make a contribution and and hopefully feel good that it's gone to a great place that um, can really use the money to do you know, important work. Yeah. I think it's so cool. Like, you know, you read this New York Times article specific that we were chatting about it yesterday. But as you point out, you know, the Chronicle and anybody who's reporting on this, you know, they end the article with like, here are five charities that you can go donate to to make an impact. But but that's still like the amount of work that's left on the reader there. It, the reader may say, yes, I want to do it. But then you got to go to all those websites. You got to figure out the flow. You got to, you know, whereas Alma, you, you're amplifying. You're just like, click this link. It's done. <laughs> What's interesting, I think, for the wildfires, um, 
you know, um, other organizations like, like the New York Times or the SF Chronicle and others, you know, have also identified organizations that are great. Um, as you said, what we do is hopefully make it even, even simpler and more streamlined for you to, to make a donation. But then for other issues, you know, like um, uh, the fund we launched before this one was um, supporting women through their career journey. So how do we get more young women into STEM? Uh, how do we get fair uh, parental leave for everybody? How do we uh, help prevent workplace harassment? And how do we support uh, more women into leadership, particularly in tech? And although everyone, you know, obviously in, in, in tech over the last few years has been, you know, very thinking a lot about this, this, this issue, um, still most people, you know, we spoke to didn't, couldn't easily identify an organization that, that was helping them do those things. And so that's where I think we've been able to bring some um, you know, bring something and that we, you know, we spent a long time trying to understand which organizations are doing what. And then, you know, we've pulled a handful of them together that you can again support on, on Alma. Um, um, you know, if that's the cause that you wanted to care about. So, you know, also doing our own research to try and find these organizations that most people perhaps, you know, haven't heard of, um, every day when they think about a cause. These, I just downloaded the app for the first time. It's it, first of all, it's super nice. The, these little facts that are at the bottom of the cause, the little did you knows are, like this one in the Fortune 500, there are more CEOs named John than there are female CEOs. I mean, that's absolutely abominable. And it, it the the way that you you guys are splicing this in here in between anita.b.org, equal, equal rights equal rights advocates and these great organizations to really like drive the point home and sort of um um you know to go back into startup parlance like drive conversion at the bottom of the funnel. I, I think it's a uh, um, you know, you guys do a really nice job of, of making the point right where you need to make it uh, for someone to, yeah. to contribute. And that's what we're trying to, you know, in, in, in I guess, to some extent, the sort of marketplace we're, we're, we're trying to build um, is, you know, th- these organizations are, are doing incredible work. And, you know, what we're trying to bring, I guess, is that, you know, can we take some of the things that we learned from Airbnb around how to, you know, people, how to get people to do something new for the first time? Um, and, and now in this case, it's how do we you know, get them to think about how they want to give back um, and, and start giving back perhaps for the first time. And so we're extremely fortunate to, to get to support, you know, some of these amazing organizations, like you said, Anita B or Equal Rights Advocates. Uh, and what we're trying, we're trying to do is like, how do we take all those things we learn around, you know, how to help people build confidence and, and make a commitment and, and, and uh, donate or book in the Airbnb terms and bring that to the sort of charity and philanthropic space. And to your point, you know, most people, just want to know that um, the organizations have been through some vetting, that they're, they're respectable, yeah. um, they do good work. Then they want to know a bit about the stories, like, you know, what, why is this important? What, what, you know, and how will my money help? And that's where we found, to, to your point there, just even, you know, just simple facts that people maybe didn't even realize about a cause um, can, you know, get people to like, oh, wow, I had never realized that, yeah, there were more CEOs called John in the Fortune 500 than there are female CEOs. Um, you know, just little things like that. People are like, okay, this is a problem that like this shouldn't happen. Yeah, here's a way I can do something with it. That's great. Well, Dan, um, wh- yeah. where can listeners find Alma? Where can they find you on the internet? Um, Alma, just go to alma.app. Um, you can donate on web, or you can download the app from uh, the app stores. Um, I'm, I think, linked from our website too. So if you if you want to learn more about me or, or contact me, please do. I'm Dan at Alma.app as well. Um, but yeah, Alma.app is is where it's where the, where the product is. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate uh, you, your time as well. Yeah. 
Um, listeners, there's a, a a little link in the show notes to the the Kimberlite page. Feel free to share if you liked uh, any bit of this episode and, and would recommend that uh, uh, others become an LP too. And with that, we will see you uh, for the next major uh, or the next public episode, Netflix Part 2. Coming soon, soon to a podcast app <laughs> near you. <laughs> uh, All right. Thanks, Dan. We'll see, see you guys next time.